Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is the first of the fifth month of the year, although you may not have noticed as all the days are merging together into a totally blank slate as uh, our lives are slowly consumed by COVID-19. Well, that may be the case with you, Gary. I, however, am very conscious that it is May the 1st. It is May Day, the Workers' Day. I have walked around as my morning exercise with my red flag around the town, waving it and shouting up the workers, because I think that maybe this finally, this time, this is the crisis which is going to provoke the internal contradictions within the capitalist system and bring it down and bring on the workers' paradise that we all long for. Did you enjoy, I I took into account you saying that I should try and put a bit more happiness into the openings and closings. Did you like that? Yeah, yeah, I could feel, I could feel the, 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 the brio, the attack, the, the, the juice of life, Gary. God, you're, you're a life enhancing. Nobody could doubt that. I was talking to someone recently about uh, COVID-19 statistics. They'd asked me to do a little bit of analysis on it, on some parts of it. And afterwards, they're like, it was a great presentation. You did look a little bit too gleeful when you were talking about the deaths, though. Yeah, it's always tricky, isn't it? You know, to, it's not the moment when you're, when you're going through death toll. It's not the moment to remember that funny thing that happened yesterday and chuckle to yourself about... Oh, I just think if you're giving a presentation, a little bit of razzle-dazzle is important. Apparently, they would like a little bit more difference, a distance between razzle-dazzle and mass deaths. As you take pleasure in the way that graph really works well. And you see what I did with the... See what I did with that? I got that 3D effect on it. Isn't that cool? Now we go to deaths of children. Zoom effect. <laughs> oh, God. Moving on. Quickly, quickly, very quickly. One of these jokes is going to get us into trouble oh, one day. Oh, yeah. Get me into trouble. From graphs, which are things you can see, to things you can't see. Jim Daly. Jim Daly has a problem with the things you can't see, Michael. I feel like I. It sounds like I'm introducing a love song. Yeah, well, indeed, and it is. It is. It's all about the love. Well, it's all about the love. It's all about the humanity. Our minister for older people, Jim Daly, or should I say, the acting minister for older people, Jim Daly, as he's technically retired from politics. Yes, has come out. And he's made two comments that I think are, are interesting here. One is he is he has said that um, nursing homes and residential facilities should allow people to come and visit their loved ones who were in their care. Yes. And he also says that um, if he was to be honest, he would have to say that he thought Tony Houlihan, our divinely appointed chief medical officer, Mm -hmm. was correct when he decided that residential care settings shouldn't ban visitors, which they wanted to do in order to limit the spread of COVID-19, considering that the elderly are the people most likely to die from COVID-19. And if you're an elderly man... Or an elderly man with hypertension, God help you. Now, Gary, and let's be fair here, he did say that I, I think, and I'm quoting here, on a human level, it is very, very, very difficult for the residents of nursing homes not to have met with loved ones and not to have met visits from loved ones. He used the word very three times there, Gary, and I think that that's impressive. I mean, it is very impressive, but do you know what else is very hard, Michael? A funeral where you can't go? Because you got because the numbers that you, you are going to be over ten, that's a hard thing to be able to. That's a hard. Also, thing. I'm I'm very curious. Like sixty percent of all deaths now in long term care facilities like nursing homes, 
residential care settings. Now, sorry, Gary, can I just clarify? And I'm sorry if I'm going to put you on the spot here. You may not know this because these figures may simply not be available. My understanding that at the moment we're talking around 60% of deaths are taking place in care homes, yeah? Mm. The total figures of death. There are also other people who died in hospital who came from care homes. Is that not correct? I believe that from what I heard of the numbers yesterday, that that is the case. So that the total, my point is that even 60% does not actually represent the global fatality rates, as shall we say, intimately associated with the residents of the care home. So it's even higher. I think we can say at the very least, we are looking at nearly 60% of all death in this demographic. So I'm very curious on what basis he thinks that it was correct not to restrict access to them earlier. Also, just again on that on the numbers and being fun guy here as well. We have had there's been a very high level of of infections amongst uh, what uh, what they call frontline workers or health workers. I think a lot of people assume you think you're talking doctors and nurses here. Actually, I, my understanding is quite a large number of those people involved are people who are also who are people working in care homes, working uh, in a health capacity in some way in care homes, and there may also be have fatalities associated there. So it's not simply residents of care homes which are being conscious. So I again, overrate the pudding, the global numbers again will go up. Yeah, he said basically, even in the context of those numbers, and those numbers are pretty horrific, it was the right decision. I I, I don't know. There is, there is a sort of, well, I mean, we may have killed a lot of people, but on the other hand, it was the human decision. Yeah. Can you imagine if those people hadn't been able to go and see their elderly relatives when they were worried about them. Yeah, but, but you know, they'd probably like to see their elderly relatives now, but they're dead. Also, Gary, I suspect from talking to friends of mine who have elderly relatives in care that many people actually will have forborne going to visit them, even though they want to, because they felt it was the best thing to do, that it was not safe or sensible for them out in the world to go to visit, even though they wanted to. So I think that actually the number of people that ended up, would have ended up going to visit and actually going to these cares would have been pretty low. I, but I think we shouldn't get away from, we shouldn't look at this simply on the on a visitor's issue, you know. There's a wider issue of the the way that care homes have been treated. And we know, at least we think we know anyway, they say this is the truth, the people in the care homes, that when they went to get PPE, to get the kind of protective equipment that they needed, that they were being told by suppliers, I'm sorry, we've been given instructions not to sell to the private individuals, but it's all to go to the state, then the state will organise distribution. That even to this day I'm hearing about care homes that are struggling to have the correct kind of PPE that they need. Yeah, they they have substantial difficulties with PPE and with staff. Now the HSE has started to move staff in from hospitals that have been quite quiet to nursing homes, although that also seems slightly disorganised and up in the air. Uh, The Taiwanese community in Ireland actually donated a load of PPE, particularly to Irish nursing homes there uh, last week. That was very decent of them, and I saw some photographs of them doing so, and I think they should... Three cheers for the the Taiwanese... I was going to say the Republic of China, but it's not, of course. It's Well, no, it is the Republic of China. It's just not the People's Republic of China. Not the People's Republic of China. Very different place. No, the reason I'm bringing up that, it's not because while the... No doubt, visitors coming in was a danger, but also the fact that the the these nursing homes weren't given the opportunity to to, to protect their staff 
that their staff was they were dealing with turnover, which meant that there were places having to use staff that were going to maybe more nursing homes than they would previously have been doing. That there weren't the proper protocols. They weren't they weren't being they weren't able they weren't in a position to to impose the proper protective protocols for their staff. Meant that the, the the staff themselves may have been a, a vector bringing in infection into the into the care homes, so I think this, this the care homes have been failed both on the le- practical level and the and the and the advice level. I mean, Michael, speaking of people that the elderly haven't seen in a while, we have COVID nineteen pretty much rampaging through care facilities, which are primarily used by the elderly. What I actually noticed, and it took me a while to notice them because it's hard to notice something by its absence. Very true. Is why are, have you heard anything from any of the elderly care charities? Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. We were talking about this. It struck me. You're, I had not noticed the absence, as you very often don't. But when you say it, their, their absence actually is extraordinary. There are serious questions that need to be addressed about kinds of triaging choices that have been made, the clinical decisions that have been made. Numbers that may have perfectly reasonable Perfectly reasonable explanations, Gary, but questions that need to be asked so that we're getting some kind of clarity on the basis that decisions are being made. I think there are reasonable people out there who wonder if age in and of itself with no other basis is being used in a discriminatory way when it comes to the care choices that have been made and are being made. And normally you would expect the the uh, el- the old age or the whatever we tip to Charities to be there advocating for these people, and I pretty well complete silence. I I don't understand that. Yeah, I mean, particularly in relation to the triage choices, because there have been there's been a great deal of uncertainty over what will happen to elderly people who are in a bad way with COVID nineteen, and whether or not choices will be made which would be detrimental to their um, continuing life. Yes, but none of the questions about that that I've seen have come from those charities. No. And it would seem if you're a charity whose sole purpose is, you know, the promotion of the interests of older people. Even at levels of just inform- basic information on the issues, like, for example, I'll give you an example. Somebody was talking to me recently, and that was an interesting but important thing to point out. When we talk about underlying conditions, you know, or, or morbidity, I think a lot of people think that that means, oh, some other very, very serious illness. So when they hear, like, People aged between 60 to 80 who have an underlying condition will be treated in this way rather than that way. Yeah? But the reality is what we're talking about here is the vast majority of people in 60 to 80 will have something. All that means is something which detracts from perfect health. You could have elevate slightly high blood pressure, which is managed by drugs, which means you're, you're perfectly healthy. Your your blood pressure is being managed by 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 pharmaceuticals. You're fine. It could be a whole series of perfectly minor things. Morbidity is not what they call predisposition, like predisposition, or pre, which is a you're talking about far more serious illnesses, issues maybe around the lungs, respiratory problems, serious cardiovascular issues, renal or hepatic problems. And I think people are just hearing these things and think, oh well, you know. They had an underlying condition, so what can you expect? Underlying conditions should not be, just by themselves again, along with age, an excuse to treat people in a radically different way. 
on the faith. There need we need greater clarity about what these kind of clinical decisions are being made. But like you say, it's not been the the uh, the old age charities making their the running on this. It's been a couple of journalists. And only a couple of journalists, by the way. By by the way, now we're still very much in the in the feel good period, where people are saying things like, "Now isn't the time for criticism or critique. Now is the time to help. Now is the time to let them die, and we can always come back." When you have a when you have a government, which is effectively imprisoning people, there should be no questions as to proportionality or if this is actually necessary. Or if what they're doing is working, you know, there should just be support. And I don't say that as someone who is virulently against a lockdown. I think it is probably constitutional. Weird willingness to accept anything. There are certain things where you should say, okay, that's grand. But only so far and no further. There was a bit of a hoo-ha, a bit of a brouhaha, Gary, you're aware of the readers, the listener maybe, uh, on the High Court, that steps the High Court recently where a, a case is being pursued regarding the constitutionality of certain kinds of activities. Now, as you know, Gary, there is an assumption in Irish law that justice will be done in public, unless there are very specific there's circumstances. I don't know, say, the, uh, the, special, special, the special criminal courts. One of the people that was involved in this was attempting to go into the court and was stopped by a guard and said, no, you can't go in. And yeah, he inquired of him, under what basis in the law was he not letting in? And the report, anyways, the guard did not have uh, an answer. Now, the point that the individual made, he said, you know, we, we should not be putting police into a position where they're making up the law as it, as they go along. Now, whatever about the rights and the wrongs of the particular situation, that's not a bad observation, Gary. And I don't think that most police want to be put in that situation either. That they're being thrown in and saying, okay, just do what you do whatever, you know, you think is necessary without actually getting the clear understanding of what the legal their legal position is. Okay, we're living under what is an effectively an emergency situation. Although I don't think we actually have declared emergency, have we? I don't believe so. So there are going to be severe restrictions with sunset clauses, etc. But I I don't think it should be taken as a sign of, shall we say, of being some kind of a Judas Iscariot to 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 occasionally raise your hand and say, "Now, is that necessary? Is this a good idea? Should you be doing this?" This, in fact, I think that that's something that they should be doing a lot more of, and it should be taken as a sign not of being off team, but rather just recognizing in a democracy that that's what boasts to kind of happen with the press. Well, we shall see what happens with the uh, with the old age charities, I suppose. Might hear a bit more of them over the next while as people sort of shake off the uh, everything must be positive. Oh, and that is going to that is going that is going to happen when people have when the fear has declined to a degree. People, I would say, there are a great deal of people in governments in the West just looking at the Swedish debt numbers and just going up, up. Oh, I, yeah, it's horrible. Don't stop. It's a horrible thought, but I think it's absolutely true. Because what you don't want is in six months, someone turning around and going, remember when you destroyed the economy? Yeah. And it turned out we just didn't need to do that. Well, actually, we'll be discussing Sweden more, I think, on Sunday. We're going to go through the figures yeah. in a bit more detail and look into the idea of whether or not a lockdown is actually, what benefit a lockdown is, or if most of the benefit has already been given by social distancing 
mask wearing, uh, greater hygiene, basically. But I, I have one story, Michael, and I, I have it just to annoy you. <laughs> thank um, you, thank because you. Because I saw it and I thought, I don't really want to talk about it too much. I just want to tell Michael about it. God. And it's uh, Antonio Guterres, who is the uh, UN Secretary General. I, he was in an I, interview with the BBC. I know him well. And um, he was asked, well, you know, how did COVID-19 spread? Or, you know, why did it spread so, so easily? And he said, well, the world was not able to come together and to face COVID-19 in an articulated, coordinated way. Each country went with its own policies, different countries with different perspectives, different strategies, and this allowed the virus to spread. Countries failed to work together, and it's obvious we lack um, leadership. So the UN is saying there wasn't enough international cooperation. If only we had some sort of international organization, Michael, that in some way could have standardized the way that COVID-19 deaths would be counted and how tests would be carried out and the international health response. Some sort of a world health, or health organization? Something like that. Or grouping. We'll, we can workshop the name. World Health Group. Yeah. And if that, if that organization was maybe under the remit of the UN, so right. That's a, under yeah. the leadership of, of Antonio Guterres, yeah, indeed, yeah. I think we can all agree the situation would have, uh, would have been sorted. Yeah, for example... An organization like that would not have gone for more than a month telling the the international community, don't worry, that we have no evidence at all that this is actually transmissible human to human. So it's not actually an issue. I, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have said at the you know right up to to March. No, no, it's not a pandemic. It's just a question of serious concern. And they wouldn't have said that things like travel restrictions were best unworkable and at worst racist. And it wouldn't later turn out that they had internally raised the subject of travel bans as a way to stop the spread of COVID-19. And the Chinese delegation had thrown the diplomatic equivalent of a shift in. Yeah, and uh, a responsible organisation like that, of course, would not have bowed to simple political pressure from the Chinese and therefore put the world at risk by giving them inadequate or poor advice. Or, I mean, ignored, ignored a country saying that they thought there was human-to-human transmission uh, and then asking the that or the WHO for advice. I mean, an organisation like that wouldn't have simply ignored that letter because that country was Taiwan. And no. They don't uh, acknowledge its existence, as we all saw in that hilarious interview of... Uh, the WHO spokesman refusing to acknowledge Taiwan's existence in an interview and then cutting off the call. Yeah, for example, especially if Taiwan had come to that, had come to understand the, the problems, shall we say, around Christmas of the pre, of the year before the the the, the 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 whole thing started to explode, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have spent four months giving the world advice against wearing masks and then see a situation where pretty well every government in the world was then going to turn around and say, you know what, you that centralised, unified advice that we're given on travel, on masks, on the inefficiency, the inadequacy of, of uh, closing down economic activity, internal movement, all that stuff that we were actually given, we've decided actually all the advice we were given was wrong. So, uh, I mean, that organization also wouldn't have totally failed to set forward a standardized means of testing and quantifying deaths and infections from COVID-19 and therefore totally removed the ability of the world to uh, 
know that it was comparing like with like across different borders without having to individually go and check the countries involved. And he certainly wouldn't have had a situation where prominent virologists, almost Nobel-winning types, you know, would actually say to the press, no, we won't go through an organisation or through, because we like to communicate, we communicate directly as groups of scientists across the world. The information flow is perfect. If you get into that other situation, politics get in the way and you start to, you lose transparency and you lose speed. And I mean, that organisation wouldn't have been consumed in scandal as it came to light that the person heading it had been accused of Covering up three different Ebola outbreaks, or sorry, cholera outbreaks, while a mem- in his country, oh, that- while a member of a communist party which murdered many, many people. Yeah, one of the most murderous regimes in, in, in not just in Africa but in the world at the time. But the Derg, possibly the, the Derg, for example, that kind it of just thing, which was for for those for some reason the Derg is not well known, but whereas in Cambodia the Khmer Rouge is very well known, but the Derg less known, but the Derg. Der- did their best to up to two million people and organised a few famines as well. I mean, we and also we would have to trust in that person's good sense and ability to make the right decision. I mean, it's not like they would have ever tried to appoint, let's say, Robert Mugabe as a goodwill ambassador. <laughs> and I mean, it's not like no, that. Actually, stop. we're going to we're gonna have to stop, oh, stop this because we have a time limit. Oh, God. But we can keep going. Messages, folks. You know the UN turns out it's a shithole. Any oh got the by the way, that's not a joke. That little funny thing that Gary just said about Robert Mugabe and all that. No, no, he did he they, did do that. They did actually do that. They did actually it, it was seen it was seen as a as a present for China because China were largely behind the fact that the current head of the WHO is the head of the WHO. He was seen as Beijing's candidate. Mugabe is a very strong supporter of China in Africa, which China sees as one of its um, most important points of expansion yeah. geopolitically. And so the WHO making Mugabe a goodwill ambassador was seen as a thing they could give Mugabe to burnish his international reputation. And the reputation of the WHO, of course, would be equally burnished by his well, I mean, illustrious Mugabe... presence. Mugabe knows a lot about human health. Oh, he does. He knows a lot. Much as Edie Amin knew a lot about human nutrition. Well, yes, but you know, poster turned gamekeeper. Yeah. Anyway, I think we'll move along. You, 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 you keep talking. I'm going to take some beta blockers here because my blood pressure, for some reason, seems to have gone up. There's one more story I saw, and I, I, I don't know. I'm actually just curious to get your opinion on this one, Michael, and I'd actually be curious about the listener's opinion on this as well. Because I saw it and I didn't think it was anything, but then I kind of looked at it and went, it is, if nothing else, it seems to me astoundingly petty. So basically what's happened is um, the parents of a boy uh, went to the Workplace Relations Commission and got a ruling saying that what had happened to that boy was uh, terrible, discriminatory, no arguments for it, no place in a modern society. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what had happened is that he went to a Catholic school uh, Yellow Furs School in Meath, which I actually know. And there was a First Communion choir ceremony that you could go to. And the school says anyone could go to it. You actually didn't need to be Catholic. You could go to it. But the people who went to it were given a homework pass. Basically, they didn't have to do homework that day because they were at this ceremony instead. And the child didn't go to it and was therefore given homework. 
So they brought a Workplace uh, Relations Commission ruling alleging that this was discriminatory and her son was deeply upset for being penalised for not attending the choir ceremony. Yeah. Uh, she also said that he didn't have the option to take part because she says the family are atheist, which is a weird sentence, actually. So I always think of religion as a personal thing. So to say this family is atheist. I think there's a lot of things that are odd about that sentence, Gary. Kind of sounds more like mother didn't like uh, didn't like the idea that he would attend. First of all, it's a, a it's a choir event, right? For a first communion, for admittedly, a, a cor- but it seems to first. just be a, a choir event. No, yeah. it is. I I think most people understand a Catholic primary school. One of the things that Catholic primary schools do is they kids go to first communion. They do first communion, first confession, and then maybe even confirmation, depending on. And there will be events, and they part of the music you do in school will be. No, I, I'm just okay. Leaving the the, the central point of the thing behind just that sentence. Um, the mother argued he did not have the option to take part in the ceremony, as the family are atheist. Mm-hmm. No, neither you nor I, Gary, are what I describe as tremendously religious. No, I think that's fair. Um, I don't know how you feel about or spiritual music. Oh, definitely not spiritual. Much more religious than spiritual. Mm. But you know what, Gary? I am perfectly willing to trot along to a performance of Handel's Messiah or Beethoven's. Well, Fidelio is not really re- religious, but I'd say Mozart's Requiem or Fourier's Requiem or Verdi's Requiem or the Mass of the Re- the Resurrection by that French guy that I like that I can never remember his name, but they did the bird song, Messian, or a concert of music by Palestrina. Or yeah, I mean, one of my, I, actually, I'd say my favourite piece is probably Henry Purcell's Hear My Prayer, O Lord. Beautiful piece of music. Yeah, explicitly religious. Doesn't don't have any sway with that sort of thing. It's the mother really argued piece. he did not have the option to take part. Now that isn't that a weird notion? As the ceremony, no. Well, it, I'm curious what first, that means because does that mean the school didn't let him take part because he was an atheist, or does that mean that he couldn't do it because, in her eyes? It was religious, and he's not. And you see, it seems to me there's something far more ideological going on there. That that his presence in it would like validate this religious ceremony, or would it traumatize him, or would it expose him to religious vibes that might mess his head up? There's a there's a comic that I'm not sure if you've seen, and it's a. Uh... It's of a child and his mother in a park. And the child goes, why are those two men kissing, Mammy? And the next scene is the mother going, oh, no, Tim, look away. And the last scene is the child dressed like Elton John saying, it's too late, Mother. I have seen everything. (laughs) Maybe that's how she assumed choir practice works. Except less gay. Now, again, we don't have the details. I am assuming that this was a choir ceremony that was the problem that he would have to sing or was, was were they just going to be present 
for the choir. I mean, it says the parents were deeply hurt and upset by the treatment of the school to the point they removed their b- from the school. And also got five grand. And got five grand, which is handy money. Atheist Iron said the commission's ruling was an important win to the right of freedom of belief. You know, I wouldn't dismiss the issues around the nature of religious and non-religious education at at primary and secondary level in Ireland if you are in parts of the country that are not particularly well served. I don't know where the Yellow Furs Primary School, where the Yellow Furs is, to be honest with you. It's in Meath. It's in, well, it's in Meath, but is it in a, well, Meath is, it's a big county, I suppose, but it's not a tremendously rural county these days. I mean, certainly not East Meath. How far would it be from Navan or from Trim or somewhere? I, what I, my point is, I recognise that there are going to be places where it is going to be difficult for non-religious people to access a non-religious education, say, of the kind that might be offered by Educate Together or a multi-denominational or interdenominational kind of offer that you might find in some gay schools or some vocation. I understand that. I, 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 had, I had similar situations occur to me when I was in school, and I was very much non-religious. I, the priests, I, I was in a Christian prayer school. Priests knew that because I just told them. Didn't didn't have any belief in this sort of thing. And uh, if someone came to me and went, hi, you can go to this uh, choir practice, or you can have homework, what would you like to do? You just go to the choir practice. That's what you do. Now, part of their argument is that he was punished. Well, if you're if you're being if you're let off the homework because you're busy doing something else, yeah. which is considered a, an important part of the school, and you don't do that thing, then you have no reason not to do the homework. So it kind of seems it doesn't seem like you're being punished so much as also it says here, Jane Donnelly, human rights human rights officer with Atheist Ireland, makes Atheist Ireland sound like this massive organisation. I mean, how many people in Atheist Ireland these days, Gary? Eight hundred. Thousand, maybe, at most. Anyway, that's another story. It's not not big. Right. For years, quote, for years, schools just directly forced children into religious classes and ceremonies. Now, Gary, I don't know about individual cases, and there may have been, but it, uh, put it this way, I went, I was involved, I was in the school in the 70s and the 80s. And that's uh, nowadays some time ago. There were, in my classes in secondary school, boys who were not Catholic. And they were given the option at all time, and anybody whose parents, and I know this from others, from parents who were not religious, they were given the option. You could either, If the boys wanted to stay in class, they could stay in class and do work. Or they could stay in class and participate in the class. Or they could leave the class and go and stay in another class, sit in, sit in the back of another class. That was 40 years ago, and that was a Christian Brothers school. I simply do not believe that for a very long time it has been the practice to do this on any kind of a wide, widespread scale. You know, I think that the church needs to divest and get out, and there needs... But you know what? The What is never reported on these stories, Gary, is again and again... When you poll parents in a village or in a school or in a town regarding whether or not they want their local school to be 
interdenominational, denominational, whatever, or, or maintain its Catholic ethos. We consistently see a large majority of parents saying they want the school to maintain the current ethos. The church may want, actually, I think the church would like to get out of a hell of a lot of a lot of these schools, but when it tries to do so, it meets quite a bit of re- of resistance, because parents, even though these parents are not themselves what you could describe as particularly practicing Catholics, they value highly some notion of a Catholic education, and also they want their kids to be prepared for those for confession, communion, confirmation, the rites of passage that they associate with them with their own childhood. I think there is a real risk that you in this situation where in order to vindicate I would say a fairly trivial right or privilege of a child in a school you end up basically taking away the 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 religious rights or the, the educational rights of a very large number of the very large majority of parents who want it to be in another way I mean we need to respect minorities but you get to a point where it that attempt becomes a perverse attempt and becomes in itself a form of injustice and this just feels petty you know it just feels small on the other hand i mean i've 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 agreed to die on some very small hills yeah this is some true. would say perhaps not even hills more bumps but it does strike me as immensely petty. As I said, as someone who's never religious and went to religious schools. And it just... I think part of the problem... The problem is made much worse by the fact that in most countries... Or not in most countries. Religious schools would be a separate category of school. And there would be other schools that are non-religious. Yes. In Ireland, a lot of the schools are just religious. Yes. Largely because you know, the Catholic Church had to step in and actually take over education, largely. There are... There are heritage, shall we say. We have a heritage problem. There's a large heritage of Catholic education here. Uh, I'd also, you know, I think the reality is that if you look at most Catholic schools, the notion which is pervaded by people who are not irreligious, but I think anti-religious, that these schools are involved in inculcating religion and brainwashing and hyper it's just nonsense. The fact is that vast majority of people who have who are Catholics, practicing Catholics, would actually like their schools to be much, much more Catholic than they would feel comfortable being. I actually think I did at some point how exactly this situation happened to me. And I responded to it by simply not doing the homework. And no one cared because no teacher is going to do that. No, they're not going to make a big issue about it. But I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it could be important. It might be. I just, I just have the uh, my my nagging concern with all of these is that in rather than deal with the real issue, which is a shortage of places for alternatives, even and at the same time recognizing the fact that the vast majority of parents want a certain kind of education and actually have the right to that as well, you're going to end up with a situation where nobody is actually satisfied. Except actually, that's not true because the people. You will ev- you will essentially you will create schools where there is no real ethos or no religious presence in order to offend not to offend one or two people, and essentially you're going to strip away the religious rights of all of the other parents in order to do that. And I think that's a perverse. Ultimately, it's a it's a perverse way of achieving justice. But there you go. I don't know. It just seems like people are being overly sensitive. 
But if we're wrong, you can reach me at Gary at Grift to scream at me about it. Or speak in a manner which we'll actually consider. But I can't make you do either of those things. Anyway, we will wrap it up. We will be back on Sunday. We'll be going through Sweden lockdowns. Uh, the Trying to make sense of the numbers. And also trying to do a little bit more of a comparison. Other than just saying out the numbers and then going, and none of that can be compared. <laughs> Which is such fun. I have, I've really enjoyed this. Seems to be this trend of people now popping up and going, yes, I mean, Ireland is by these statistics somewhere between the fifth and ninth worst country in the world in relation to COVID-19. But maybe other countries can't count. Maybe we're just super counters. Maybe other countries are going one, two, three, many. Yeah. And, you know, I suppose I would find that a little bit more compelling if those people then went... But actually, these countries do count the same way we do. So we're actually in this position, as opposed to just, no, we're just the best. We're like, no one could count like we've counted. <laughs> we're brilliant at counting. We didn't go to choir practice. We stayed in school and you know, did Michael, counting. I, I am a, um, I'm a deeply cynical man, I will admit. Although in other ways, I'm filled with childlike glee every waking moment as the world is every, of infinite beauty. Everybody says this. Oh, of course, yeah. That's that's what I'm known for. Yeah. But I suspect these people may have a political motive. Well, shut my mouth. I am shocked. Shocked, Gary, that you would have that kind of cynical. I hope the listeners out there ignore that. We, of course, have no political motive here. We no. have political views, but not a motive in this instance. We are 100% impartial and unbiased. Everything we do is reportage, Gary. We never do commentary. And you're lazy and I don't care about human death. There's no reason to lie. <laughs> yeah. So why, why would you bother? <laughs> yeah. See? It's flawless. Flawless. Anyway, until then, when we talk to you on Sunday, Miscellany, have a nice Friday. Have a lovely Saturday. Stay home. If you can, and if you have to go out into the big, bad, dangerous world, wear your mask and stay safe. That's a quote that's going to come back to me at some point. <laughs> It's just going to be a reporter going, did you once say you don't care about human deaths? <laughs> I have to say, technically, yes. It's always technically. Bye-bye. All the best. <laughs>